Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, boy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello and welcome to Dose of Ether, your weekly podcast where we review the Ethereum ecosystem and what's new. Uh, Lucian and I today are going to talk about uh, moving from Embark to Truffle and, and app, uh, smart contract deployment with Ethereum. We're going to talk about ChainShot and other onboarding tools for Solidity development. We're also going to go back into Peepith. You know, we had some trouble using it in the past, but you know, like everything, they're they're trying to improve the user experience, and they've found a way to eliminate transaction fees for users uh, to have kind of a, a seamless and familiar user experience. So that's interesting. Uh, Parity has uh, released some software allowing us to turn an old smartphone into a hardware wallet. So that's something we have to dive into, and we'll go into a little theory. You know, why isn't Bitcoin banned in every country? Uh, we've seen some restrictions in, in, in some countries and not others and different approaches. So let's talk about that. Um, before we get into the show, just want to give you a heads up. We're going to be at uh, Crypto Invest Summit next week, October 22nd through 24th. It's in Los Angeles. Uh, a, a few folks from the Bitcoin Podcast Network will be there along with a ton of other press and media, uh, as well as investors, uh, crypto blockchain engineers. Uh, it's a, it seems like it's going to be a great event. So we're really looking forward to it. We're going to be interviewing a number of different projects. We'll release some of those clips on the show and, and via video. Um, but we're really looking forward to it. We're going to have a booth there. So we'd love to meet some of our uh, uh, listeners. If you have time next week, October 22nd through 24th, Crypto Invest Summit uh, in Los Angeles. So let's get into the show. Lucian, you're a developer in Ethereum. Tell us about uh, the recent kind of move that you've made from Embark to Truffle and just break down what those tools do and, and how they work for us. Yeah. Hey, Bijan. Great talking to you again. So um, this past week, I have basically moved my development process from Truffle to Embark. Um, Embark is an open source project made by the people out of status.io. And um, the really nice things that I liked about it was the fact that um, it allows you to change the setup between networks very easily. So the way people write Solidity code is first they deploy it on a local test network, and then they uh, deploy it on one of the public test networks, and then they deploy it on an Ethereum mainnet. And this is because deploying something on the Ethereum mainnet is going to keep the data there for a long time, plus you have to pay. So you want to make sure that your code is finalized and it's secure before getting. And there. you know what? On a, on that on that note, I, I read recently that to store data on the Ethereum blockchain for like two or three kilobytes, it's like a dollar fifty, <laughs> and and an email is like seventy five kilobytes. So you'd, you'd spend like you know close to a hundred dollars to send an email if you wanted to store it on the Ethereum blockchain. Yeah, but the question is, do you really want to store an email on the Ethereum blockchain? Is that email like uh, going to be permanent um, and distributed over the ten thousand plus nodes uh, running the Ethereum client? Um, <laughs> all right, all right, fair enough, fair so, enough. Okay, so let's. <laughs> I'm not a developer, clearly, but let's let's move forward. <laughs> but um, yeah, so there are the idea of uh, Ethereum as a database is um, probably less adept as thinking of Ethereum as like a public-facing API, 
right? So you basically post contract uh, structures that you want to be able to in interact with and you want to make sure it runs on everyone's machine in the same way. And there's a testing process to this. And the testing process for me is deploying to a private local click proof of authority testnet, which is uh, the Go Ethereum implementation of a testnet and making sure it works there. Um, I often try or, or want to post it to a uh, public uh, testnet as well, usually before deploying um, finally to the Ethereum public uh, blockchain. But this entire process is usually in Truffle built into this one like JavaScript file and you have to change it and you have to basically um, set up the networking aspects yourself and you do it once and you're like, okay, I want to point my project to be deployed to this specific test network. And you run a terminal command and it compiles your contract, turns it into bytecode, and then puts it on a blockchain. And then you can test it. Well, the uh, way that the people at Embark have actually thought it is actually quite smart. Um, if you're connected to a uh, test net, Every time you save a project, it actually compiles and deploys for you. So it's basically like um, keeping track of the changes and automatically updates the version of the contract that you're pointing to. And uh, oh, wow. basically, the part of your project that interacts with the contract is updated for you in the background. It just happens, right? So something. So yeah. this is so this is like you know breaking this down it, as a developer of distributed applications. You know you have to think through the deployment process and the upgrade process. And is this kind of simulating kind of how you would do an upgrade in a way? Is it's deploying the contract? It's updating that that pointer record of where you know, the next version is going to be or where some other piece of logic lives. And you can, as you change your code, it's changing those kind of variables so that the smart contract can work in a deployed scenario. Exactly. And it's as if your uh, code is pointed to the right address every time you save your project on your test network, as opposed to having variables that float around your project that you have to remember to check Right, because you don't want to end up being pointed to an old smart contract on the blockchain, testing it, pulling your hair out, being like, "I thought I fixed this bug. Why is it still here?" <laughs> and mm. uh, I think it's—I really like the way it's been built, and it's really well integrated with uh, the Go implementation of Ethereum, and it essentially spins up um, a testnet um, node in Geth for you. Um, it also spins up a node of uh, an IPFS instance and connects your project directly to it, um, as well as giving you some abstraction so you could make use of Whisper. Um, and this is just mm. the features that I've actually been able to play around with and test in like my first week of using it. And I have to admit, so like this used to be a lot of individual setup that everyone would have to do to build a dApp. And oh, now wow. it's literally one yeah, terminal command. You know, this is kind of emulating the growth in different layers of abstraction uh, in the traditional kind of development environments on the web today. Um, but what I'm kind of interested in understanding a little bit more is how is this different from traditional, you know, client server web development? Like if you're comparing developing a, a peer-to-peer -peer distributed application to 
um, you know, building a, 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 a web app on a Linux, a Linux MySQL stack? Um, so I think the best analogy is actually with hardware development um, because of the way, because of the permanence of uh, deployed code on the Ethereum blockchain, right? So when you ship a product with uh, firmware on a physical device, it is really hard to upgrade um, the software that you put there. So you need to make sure that it's secure before you start sending it to clients. Um, famously, Facebook's old motto was move fast and break things. Um, if you move fast and break things in the blockchain space, you will lose all of your funds. And um, as a result, you have to take different security considerations. You have to basically make sure that you think of potential vulnerabilities beforehand. And um, rather than just deploying code, see that it works. Like if a vulnerability pops up, then you fix it and uh, then you move on. Here you kind of have to um, sit back and take a different approach and be more uh, cautious in what you deploy to a public network and you have to have better security practices put in place from the get-go. And is it obvious when you're using these tools how these pieces interplay? Um, no. <laughs> no. Actually, it's really difficult um, to figure out what are all of the possible vulnerabilities of any piece of software. And... Um, it's just because the options available to an uh, Ethereum smart contract developer makes it so that it has a very large attack surface, which means you can do a lot of things on the public network um, that you would normally want to be limited. You have a lot of options to interact with it. For example, someone could uh, deploy a smart contract to interact with your smart contract and you have to think of all of the possible ways that they could write it. For example, like it could call a function while the code is executing. It's a reentrancy attack and you can essentially have a program that functions in an unexpected way with your existing software. Yeah, and, and this is where, you know, um protocol developers, blockchain developers are trying to build in formal formal verification like Tezos um, into the smart contracts and the, the design of the um, program. Yes. But but clearly, you know, there there's another angle to this and that's, you know, um, tooling, but also the, the typical way around this is security audits, right? And um, I was just learning about this at the security token conference uh, here in Santa Monica uh, yesterday. And, you know, a couple of the companies developing, they're like, yeah, we, we didn't really anticipate what it would take to do a security audit of our platform. Like it took us a few weeks to build it, but then a few months to audit it. Um, and, and they had no, and, and even the ch choosing of your auditor is a huge thing because you might get, you know, Ernst & Young or some big audit firm but they're not a technical firm and so will they be able to have the chops to really audit your code and and then you've got bug bounties right so when you're building a production application and you expect it to be used by hundreds or thousands of people um, you you want to make sure that you get those bugs out rooted out before there's a mainnet launch and that you have some way out if you discover a critical bug in the early days Agreed, yes. And these are security implications that developers typically haven't been um, exposed to. 
and it takes a different kind of mindset to build these types of applications. Um, it's kind of cool, but it's also cool because as the space matures, people take these into account, and um, eventually I foresee uh, security-focused applications being built into these types of deployment pipelines. Um, so you can have um, static analysis of your code. It just looks at your code and you're like, oh, you have a vulnerability here. Um, formal verification on Ethereum will be difficult just for the simple reason that um, of the possible of having for loops and recursion. And when you have these available to you, then it just takes a lot of uh, different, uh, it just takes a lot of computational power in order to uh, verify that a program works. And so, so, you know, getting into onboarding as an experienced developer into Solidity as a new, you know, developer on that, on, on this platform, are these things taught in the Code Academy type um, tools like crypto zombies and you know chain shot which uh i know you've got a little bit of experience with is that is that the kind of thing that they talk about or are they talking more you know how to write your first solidity app so um crypto zombies is usually how i try to onboard people into uh solidity smart contract programming and it basically lays out the language very much in a codecademy style and um, it's interesting because it opens all of the possibilities of the language to you. Um, something like Chainshot is more analogous to a code dojo. And code dojo is like you already know the language, but you want to practice using it um, for small problems that um, basically help you improve your skill set. Most of these do not focus on security because Honestly, security is really complicated, and there's another tutorial um, by the Zeppelin Foundation called Ethernaut that is purely security-focused, but you learn security by hacking smart contracts. And how far does this get you? If you use you know, a few of these tools, uh, which we'll link, obviously, in the description, how, how far does that get you? Are you able to get a job as a blockchain engineer after completing these? And, and is that you know a two-month process? Um, I think it's not enough to know Solidity um, because there are people who are like secure, Solidity code writing experts. It's probably not the best idea to uh, have that as your only programming background. Um, either like some experience in uh, decentralized computing also helps and just general front-end programming as well because you can essentially take a blockchain and slap a front-end on it and don't worry about the actual like back-end infrastructure just have a really good idea and understanding of how the ethereum blockchain works and then you don't actually need like a server or back-end architecture although it's highly unlikely that you will have an app that is simple enough to actually function mm. that way. I've everything that is like above a tutorial level, you have to build a full stack app that communicates or interacts with a blockchain for part of it. And it helps being a full stack developer and then throwing uh, blockchain skills on top of it. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, 
I think it's actually quite easy to get a developer job within the blockchain space because it's probably the fastest growing industry, even in tech, which is the fastest growing industry um, because of how much funding, how many new projects there are, and the general lack of uh, experienced developers here. So I highly recommend it. Hey, well, that and that for all our listeners out there, um, join our Slack room. Uh, the Bitcoin Podcast Network. We've got a Slack. It's a great chat. You'll learn a lot. But also, um, maybe we can connect you with some folks looking for blockchain engineers. If you've gone through crypto zombies and Chainshot, and you've got a GitHub to share, um, talk to us. We'll, we'll we'll hook you up. Yes, please do. And if you have any other ideas about developer tools or um, other ways that or uh, things that helped you learn. Oh, on that note, actually, uh, the uh, mastering Ethereum book is supposedly being sent to the printers. So the Mastering Ethereum book that is uh, on GitHub for free right now is in its final version, well, first edition version. Um, and it's written by Gavin Woods and Andrasi. Mm-hmm. I'm mispronouncing his name. Andreas? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly, but but definitely Gavin Wood. And, and I was reading... Uh, a really important topic on on this um, because you know the oracle problem is the linchpin for a lot of these dApps that are being built um, and we talked a lot about that at uh, blockchain week in san francisco a couple of weeks ago um, and you know a lot of the projects are dead on arrival because they have no way of objectively verifying the truth in the real world, right? And Augur spent two years building a, a, a prediction market to, to solve just this. But I know Gavin Wood in this um, article or this this book actually goes through design patterns for Oracle systems in Ethereum as distributed applications. And so, um, but this is a big, big open problem um, that I'm glad there's being research done on. Uh, you know, the the lead on on Plasma um, he was talking about how, you know, this is this is the, an area of research that's just not being done in blockchains. Uh, and it really, really, uh, you know, it's a call to all researchers. The Oracle problem is critical to, you know, nullifying the disbelief in Ethereum and, and smart contracts in general and, and distributed autonomous organizations. So sure. if you think that Ethereum is better than Bitcoin, um, definitely we have to solve So that. to introduce our listeners to the Oracle problem, the idea that you have a blockchain-based network of trustworthy computing, um, not all networks rely solely on blockchains, and almost every good application of blockchain has a um, specific need for information outside of the blockchain to be put on chain. So the question is, is if you are reaching out of the blockchain for information, let's say for a stock price, for a headline from the New York Times that declares that the Yankees won the World Series, essentially you don't have a fully trustworthy uh, ecosystem because this trusted third party becomes a vulnerability. And that's the Oracle problem, Right. right? So the blockchain could work as well as you want, but if it has to reach out to a server that doesn't run on a blockchain, then all of a sudden you've introduced a trusted third party and a vulnerability. 
Yeah, exactly. And and the 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 way to think about this is to break down objective data and subjective data. And there is a point in the development of technology where it can go from subjective to objective. So what this means is if the blockchain needs to measure something that happened in the past on the blockchain, it's it's easy. It can look through the hash and the Merkle tree and, and verify it, right? It's objective data that's that's built into the protocol. And so building incentive mechanisms around purely blockchain information is is straightforward. It's not easy, but it's straightforward. When you get into the real world, let's say you want to measure the weather and you have no the inputs that you have are news articles, weather.com, you know, people putting their finger out in the in the wind and, and trying to guess. Um, you could do wisdom of the crowds and get a thousand people to, to submit their, you know, iOS uh, weather data through an API. Like you can get close to it. You can triangulate on what is objective reality. But all of those have um, failure uh, modes. And, you know, if you don't get, let's say, enough enough people in the crowd giving you data, then you can't correct for any errors. Or if you're looking at weather.com um, and they get hacked, well, now your data source is, is uh, disrupted. And so, you know, Augur tried to solve this by engaging reporters and, and people who were creating the market had to designate a source of truth. And then you let the crowds decide what the value of the truth is and, and what the actual outcome is. Um, but that doesn't work if you're trying to evaluate, let's say, whether a, a seller on eBay is reputable, because a seller on eBay may only sell five or 10 items. Like, how, how are you really going to verify that he's in the location he says, that he's actually shipped these items? And so on and so forth. So for any meaningful subjective information, it's really, really hard to solve this problem of uh, verifying it purely in a decentralized way. And it, there's no real solution in the immediate future to this issue. Um, it's an open problem. And also, you hear people from the Bitcoin space, they refer to this issue. They say, like, oh, smart, car, uh, smart contracts aren't smart. This is kind of what they're referring to. Um, it's a big open issue. And the question is, if we can't resolve this specific issue in a good decentralized way, then there may always be a vulnerability in a specific class of use cases. Um, but I think there will right. be some kind of really interesting solution or um, blockchain networks will grow to the point in which, for example, the New York Times is printed in a blockchain based format. Um, and all of the articles running on the New York Times could have a cryptographic verification built into them. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, the way I look at this is it was hard for us to predict that layer two state channels would be, you know, a solution that would bring transaction fees down and allow, allow you to do off chain computation, you know, without burdening the, the, the root chain. Something that we have to, you know, wait in a, in a way um, for these tools to be developed, but you can envision air quality sensors being installed on every rooftop. And then you do get an objective source of data um, and you can sidestep, you know, those issues of weather.com being hacked. If you have a thousand different air quality sensors or weather sensors on the roof of every home. Um, and, and if you get these applications building network effects, um, then you can start to see some of these advancements. Not only that, there's economic models that you can build in that we're still discovering today. I mean, TCRs, token curated registries, 
are still really in the early days of being developed. There's only two applications live, Foam and I think AdChain, um, that are actually leveraging token curator registries. And the novel thing about this mechanism is that it's able to figure out the truth in the real world without ever needing to interact with the real world because the behavior of users determines, in the case of a TCR, whether the, the, the token underlying that catalog or that list has value. Um, and we don't have to go into the details of this, but, but um, what's really interesting about that mechanism is that um, users, by buying tokens and wanting to participate in being on the list, being whitelisted in this TCR, um, they're indicating that the TCR has value in the objective real world, because why would they buy tokens to be included on a list if it wasn't giving, driving business to them or, or whatever else? Um, and so it's, it's a novel thing where you know the TCR has value because there are people willing to buy the tokens to, to be included in that list. Yeah, and I do have to also point to the fact that um, in the Internet of Things devices, they've kind of already solved this issue um, by putting hardware embedded um, cryptographic chips, which sign sensor data once it's received before being broadcasted. And if there's an embedded chip within a system, as long as the sensor is working correctly, then the data that the sensor emits is accurate as well. And you have that cryptographic verification that it came from that specific mm. device. So there are solutions and it is a technical problem in the end, but it's also a societal problem, right? Like how do we as a society agree upon what is uh, accurate and valid data, right? The, the concept of fake news being in today's uh, vocabulary is something that also highlights the need of trustworthy information coming from online mm. sources. Yeah. But it also points that it's more of a social issue than just like, okay, the code <laughs> works. <laughs> yeah, this stuff is definitely complicated because it's all about coordination, right? Um, the, the cool thing about Napster and BitTorrent was that they solved really deep coordination problems um, that weren't possible before peer-to-peer -peer networks. And um, they were able to get a critical mass such that they, they were sustainable you know, long into the future. Um, and we're seeing a new generation of those applications today. And so Peepith, you know, being the decentralized Twitter, um, they have a real problem with usability. Uh, and so, uh, like many blockchain applications, they're doing some development and, and trying to eliminate the, you know, the gas fees that, that users are burdened with for every transaction. So can you tell us a little bit about how they've tried to sidestep those issues? Yeah, so what Peepith has done is they've gone and um, before you were able to batch transactions and you were able to send something like 15 peeps and likes and interactions with their network that could be stored in a single blockchain transaction. And what they've done is they've actually um, externalized this one more step and the network itself makes a transaction every hour so it batches all of its users' transactions into one meta transaction. And it's like when you actually use Twitter, um, but every hour there's a finality to it. Right. Um, it's as if the Twitter 
um, network would essentially post a cryptographic proof of the activity on its network. So if someone tries to uh, delete their tweet, there is an evidence of uh, who did it, when they tried to do it. So it's basically a tamper-resistant version so, of Twitter. So, but how how do they? Um, it it sounded like they do it client side, like they or or they take it into their own server before and before that hour, um, or before the sync time, let's say, where they sync with the blockchain, and and they're not they're either not showing so, those tweets to users, or that's a centralized point of failure for their network, isn't it? Um, as uh, we mentioned a bit earlier, it's you don't put data straight onto the blockchain. Instead, what they're doing is they actually are putting the IPFS address. Um, and that IPFS address is actually uh, holding users' data. And um, in this case, it's basically batching a uh, number of transactions into their uh, IPFS implementation. And... Um, it's basically a uh, database that holds users' actions, and every hour there's a record of those transactions being made on the blockchain. So Corey, um, on the Slack uh, from the Bitcoin Podcast Network uh, main show and hashing it out, he mentioned the fact that this is kind of just like another iteration towards Twitter, right? By making the application more usable, it also acts a lot more like a centralized system. Um, and D also had a really interesting comment, and he said that this is what Coinbase did. They basically took all the blockchain out of the blockchain application to make it easier to onboard anyone. And yeah, it's it's interesting. Tell us what you think, because in one sense, it becomes much more of a standard application and the line between a blockchain application and a standard application gets really blurry once you basically make a lot of compromises for usability. I mean, here's the thing. I'm sympathetic to this view because I, the reality is there are 25 million supposed crypto users in the world um, and there's billions of internet users. So the PPIP is not going to grow if people have to download MetaMask and convert fiat to ETH and, and somehow figure that out. Like, it's just not going to happen. So until until the tooling in the decentralized world is, you know, really robust and we don't have to deal with this or there's enough adoption to where users can, can retain custody of their data, you know, end to end, um, we have to settle with a hybrid approach. You know, you see this with Origin Protocol because they can't solve the Oracle problem. They are having an attestation service where, you know, they're going to use the trust of their company to attest to the, val the, you know, the validity of, uh, of, of different contractors and, and suppliers on their, on their marketplace. And so, um, and, and you see this with Coinbase trying to improve usability of exchanges um, because it's just not feasible yet to have a fully decentralized exchange. So when the liquidity is there, when the usability is there, um, you'll start to see more adoption of these. But it's like piracy, right? Like, I think Netflix is uh, at, at a big risk right now because um, we're turning the internet into cable TV again. You have to manage 10 different accounts. You have to remember which shows are on which you know streaming service and you end up paying $50 a month. Uh, and you don't have all the shows that you want. And so people will return to piracy, right? So the ultimate 
answer to this is the usability of a fully decentralized application for an end user needs to be uh, comparable to the traditional web. And until it is, you're not going to see the adoption that you're expecting. And so the hybrid model is great because it introduces some of the benefits of blockchain, let's say like an escrow service for payments, where maybe the risk of your centralized service being hacked and somebody intermediating or, or, or being a man in the middle for that um, and attacking you, you know, it's a slim chance for a hundred dollar order. Maybe the benefits of escrow and verification of identity and whatever else, like maybe those things are more useful than um, than the traditional web. And if you can maintain you know, high usability and sacrifice some of that security, you might be able to actually win over customers from these really strong networks in a way that you wouldn't be able to otherwise. Yes, um, I think eventually um, a full blockchain model might not um, be user-friendly enough or who knows, maybe there'll be some breakthrough in um, front-end UX UI design in which you can have no compromise but without the high onboarding costs that currently exists. Um, I'm kind of betting on the second and I think that technology will uh, eventually improve to the point in which it becomes less and less effortless but I think this segues really well into our next story which is um, the parody uh, signer version 2 where you could take one of your old phones that you have lying around, flash the firmware, upload the parody signer, um, but it really shows the types of, the level of um, security that you need for blockchain-based applications. But in order to turn your old phone into a hardware wallet, you essentially need to cut off all network access and keep it off forever. You'll never connect it to the internet. You'll never connect it th to, uh, through Bluetooth. <laughs> None of these things. You literally have to take it offline and you can keep it offline um, because you could then use it as a hardware wallet and you can essentially use it as uh, a way to store your crypto because all you really need to do in this case for a completely offline device is one, make sure that you have an uncompromised uh, version of your um, cell phone software running on there. And two, just simply create cryptographic keys and store them. Um, I thought this was kind of cool. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's great. And, and actually, you know, I think air-gapped computers has been a, uh, it's been a, a really important part of, you know, personal security for anyone who's interested in anonymity, right? And, you know, uh, we had Ed Snowden who was using air-gapped computers to talk to The Guardian, right? And this is really just doing that for smartphones. It's great uh, because everybody has an old smartphone laying around that they can use for this. Uh, but the concept is pretty simple. You keep it off the internet so that you don't get, um, you can't get hacked, and then you have only one way to uh, communicate with the outside world. And in the case of an air gap computer, you actually can sign transactions and and do things that you transfer via USB back to an internet computer. But it's a very cumbersome process, and and if you without having to buy you know a hundred dollar hardware wallet from um, you know Trezor or Ledger then you can you can turn your old far smartphone into a hardware wallet and get some additional security who, who wouldn't want yeah. that uh, and I'm, i think the old version of the parity hardware uh wallet essentially used um a air-gapped app 
that just didn't have connectivity. Um, and it basically displayed private keys on the screen of your smartphone that you could then scan with your webcam on, off of your laptop. Um, so they just moved one step even further um, in this process of kind of like air gapping and isolating the keys. What's interesting too is that the you know Android is actually moving, Google is actually moving in this direction for bank transactions and every sensitive transaction that you might do on the internet. You know, and um, the way that they've done this is that they have a, a hardware secured kind of protected sandbox on Android devices now for the Pixel 3 XL and Pixel 3. And what you can do with that is an, an application developer can call just a, an API for a secure transaction. And what that does is it reboots the, 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 smartphone, uh, the phone into this kind of bootloader um, that has no access to other parts of the operating system. And it can process that transaction over the internet over you know, HTTPS um, in a secure way that's un that's untamperable. So if you do transfer fifty thousand dollars through a wire on your phone, you can do it with the Wells Fargo app in this protected Google secure you know area sandbox, which is super cool. Uh, so we're kind of moving from both angles to the solving the the inherent Agreed. security problems yeah. of the internet. And you can kind of see the lessons being learned in crypto uh, permeating the rest of society as well. Totally. Um, and so let's get into a little theory and, and uh, we'll let our, our listeners get on with their week. But uh, not that they're obligated to continue listening. We just hope they will. Um, you know, why isn't Bitcoin banned everywhere? It's an interesting topic. I know Japan has pretty much banned uh, exchanges, uh, to my knowledge. And we know that China has has start started and stopped and raided, you know, different mining operations and, and has probably their thumb on everything. But what's your perspective on um, the reg regulatory side from a global point of view on Bitcoin? So um, I think you were referring to South Korea, not Japan. Um, South Korea walked back from their exchange ban, um, but they also kind of put a hard stop on some of the uh, exchanges. Um, I think this happened after North Korea hacked a major South Korean Chinese cryptocurrency exchange. Um, so it was like a na national security type issue. But for example, countries like uh, China and India crack down really hard on cryptocurrencies, but countries like the United States, um, despite the fact that it's unwilling or unable to provide cr uh, clear regulation for the cryptocurrency industry, um, the United States hasn't done really much to impede um, through regulation. Uh, I have to note that the some of the investigations that the U.S. government has done, for example, they closed down BitConnect. Good, you know, like it's obviously a Ponzi scheme, uh, guaranteed um, interest, rate of return being paid by other people who were previously in on the scam is literally the definition of a pyramid scheme yet um and they were quite transparent by the fact that it's a pyramid scheme but um yeah the sec um i think it was the sec some regulatory body actually um seized the assets of the uh, perpetrators of this scam and tried to uh 
give back some money uh, to the people that were hurt. And in the end, yes, if you are running a financial scam, um, you could technically do it with cryptocurrency, but it is still a scam. Um, and my opinion is that um, the countries that benefit the most from um, these types of digital currencies are com um, as actually stated in this article, so I recommend people read it, are people that live in authoritarian regimes um, generally or in uh, countries in which the government is intentionally devaluing their currency and has imposed capital controls. So if they want to put limits on how people can take money out of their country, like they do in China, like they do in India, um, you can use cryptocurrency to very effectively move your money. Um, the problem is, of course, that um, countries like China and India are also the ones who would probably have the worst kind of controls on cryptocurrency exchanges. So if you can control the lever of uh, fiat to crypto, then you drastically hamper its ability to actually... Um, function properly and it definitely can impede mass adoption and it just makes it really difficult to get. And the perfect example for this is Venezuela and I've been reading uh, stories of Venezuelans who have invested their entire life savings in mining equipment because it's the only way that they could actually turn their savings into um, a stable store of value because that also generates returns that they can use to um, keep up with the drastic hyperinflation that is basically wiping out their entire wealth. Um, right, and this is this is the thing that I think a lot of um, a lot of people who are negative about Bitcoin and think it's you know ready to fall, it's a bubble, whatever. Um, what they're not really cognizant of is the fact that two thirds of the fiat currencies around the world are destabilizing or not not stable. And Bitcoin provides a really easy alternative that's global, um, where people can't get US dollar, they can potentially get Bitcoin if they have access to the internet. And so this is a huge threat to countries who would be better off if their, if their economy ran on a cryptocurrency. And so, but the problem is, is that if it were running with cryptocurrency, then they wouldn't have control over their people, they would have a harder time taxing them, and they would have a harder time controlling um, their lives, right? And so with China, it's it's existential for them. Their government is very, you know, uh, it's un, it's unstable. And so they have to keep stability by being authoritative. And so they keep tabs on everyone, right? And they, they know exactly who, who you are, where you're going, what jobs you'll be eligible, and, and where how much money you should have. Um, and anything that risks that is going to be controlled. So um, I think that's where, you know, I would trust the U.S. companies you know, being being the at the forefront into the future because um, you're it, it's going to be laissez-faire. It's going to be kind of a free market approach, and everybody wants access to the U.S. capital market. So, if if you're seeing it this year after the ICO kind of bust and the SEC crackdown, 
um, you started seeing companies being like, no, we're not going to do an ICO. We're going to actually sell security tokens or we're going to do a raise with accredited investors. And they've come up with different solutions to do fundraises with, you know, retail investors, Reg A and Reg D and all these things. Um, but but you're seeing the companies in the space conform to the U.S. regulatory um, process rather than try and and really penetrate these like Eastern Europe Eastern European countries and and whatever else. And right. To, so, know, for example, if I ever do use a custodial exchange, I make sure that it's regulated by U.S. law. Um, so I'm not about to use a custodial cryptocurrency service from a country that has um, lax um, criminal prosecution of financial crimes. And I'm thinking Russia, Eastern Bloc countries, they're pretty bad about it. Um, the whole <laughs> Nigeria, probably the worst about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, but the, it, what's also interesting is you have to look out for the U.S. companies, too, because the SEC and the governing bodies haven't cracked down on all of the scam organizations. You had issues like Mt. Gox, right? And and even Coinbase, right? We trust Coinbase. They, we think that they have... Yeah. Mt. Gox yeah. was uh, was a Japan was established yeah. in Japan, um, but I, I think Mt. Gox would have happened because no one was really paying exactly, attention yeah. to it, um, and now they are definitely yeah. paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's to the point in which employers are starting to uh, request um, a disclosure regarding cryptocurrency holdings in certain sensitive. Well, this is this is why this is why you know Fidelity getting into the mix and and Nasdaq getting into the mix. These are these are the companies that are really legitimizing cryptocurrency uh, and providing custodial services that are backed by insurance and by banks that you can trust. And so, um, Coinbase and all of these, you know, and and any exchange outside of the U.S. is going to be threatened by, you know, actual banks, multinational banks getting in and, and, and doing this. So as the market matures, I think a lot of these issues will be rooted out because you'll have services that are offered by trusted parties who are, you know, um, familiar and, and you won't have to use those shady tools. I remember the first time I bought Bitcoin, I had to send money via Western Union to Russia and I got it in BTCE which many years later, you know, had an exit scam. And like, this is shady, shady shit um, that we just don't have to deal with today. So if I remember correctly, uh, BTCE was the Belarus uh, exchange that where they laundered the Mt. Gox stolen crypto. Yeah. (laughs) No, it was the Silk Road. They were they were um, dealing with money from the Silk Road, like tens of millions of dollars, which was, you know, way more and and in today's dollars for Bitcoin. Um, but, but yeah, crazy, crazy stuff. So in any case, uh, you know, that's our show for today. Thanks for joining us. We want to thank the Bitcoin podcast network for publishing this episode. Uh, and we're talking to sponsors, reach out if you want, um, to pitch your product on the show. Um, we're open for interviews as well. So, um, we're, we're, we want to get, uh, a, a different format and try different things out so contact us if you're interested and um, we'll talk to you soon enjoy the rest of your week